Kusini is a Kiswahili term meaning South. Kusini is the media initiative of SCIS, the Southern Center for Inequality Studies, a research and policy center based at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. The SCIS is an interdisciplinary inequality research unit working with partner institutions in South Africa and across the world with a focus on the global south. Many countries have enthusiastically embraced the promise of the digital economy, arguing that digitalization provides employment opportunities for those who may not be able to work in more conventional ways. This includes home-based workers who are subcontracted individual entrepreneurs or firms working through an intermediary. These workers are given raw materials and paid per job, but cover the bulk of the costs of production. Employment in the digital economy is also promising to those who have been excluded from the higher-paying formal economy, such as customer service associates and food couriers. Ideally, digitalization hopes to create flexible jobs which provides employment opportunities for people with different needs and priorities across different stages of life. A South African initiative supported by the presidency, South Africa in the digital age, sees significant income opportunities in three broad areas. Globally traded services, labor-absorbing platforms, and as a technology hub. In a country where two out of three young people aged between 15 and 24 are unemployed and desperate for a job, the digital economy is often viewed as providing an opportunity to be self-employed. However, working from home is not something new. Welcome to the first episode of a two-part series by the Southern Center for Inequality Studies with sponsorship from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung South Africa. My name is Figile Masigane. I will be your host as we look at historical and contemporary issues arising from a workforce that is increasingly working remotely, either due to shifts in technology or the COVID-19-imposed lockdown, as governments seek to control the spread of the pandemic. In today's episode, we examine the history of working from home, what we call home-based work, the shift to the factory-based work, and the full-circle return to home-based work. In the final episode, we discuss broader emerging themes that will have direct bearing on the future of home working. In this podcast series, we will use the terms self-employed home-based workers and subcontracted home-based workers, also called home workers. Self-employed home-based workers refers to the informal work undertaken in the household in the pre-industrial era. These workers assumed all the risks of being independent contractors. They buy their own raw materials, supplies and equipment, and pay utility and transport costs. They sell their finished goods mainly to local customers, but sometimes to international markets. However, the subcontracted home-based workers, also referred to as home workers or remote workers, work from home for remuneration in a supply chain with a certain level of security. 
as the product or service is specified by the employer, irrespective of who provides the equipment, materials or other inputs used. Professor Edward Webster from the Southern Centre for Inequality Studies provides a history of home-based work. If you look at the history of work, if you go back to pre-industrial revolution, let's say 200 years ago in Europe, work took place in the household, at home. Men would be weavers, women uh, would be spinners, and they would make the cloth from the house. They owned the raw materials, they owned the loom, and they had the tools. And they would either sell it on the market on a Saturday or alternatively later an intermediary would bring them the raw materials and they would collect them. Bring it on a Monday, collect it on a Friday. So work took place in the household. It was only with the rise of the factory that production moved from the household to another place, an institution set up specifically for men and women to come together to produce. So going back to the origins of the Industrial Revolution, you will see that uh, that work is now shifted from the household to the factory. This was not only the case in Europe, but also in Africa. In South Africa particularly, many people worked from home during the apartheid era, as spatial mobility was restricted. The racially segmented apartheid labour market had relatively stable working conditions and higher wages in the primary labour market, contrasted with significant levels of insecurity and poverty in the secondary labour market. Consequently, the unemployed or unskilled workers were excluded from the formal urban markets and often discriminated against through policies that sought to control the influx of black workers. Over this period, Many women specifically relied on working from home. Such women owned shabins, unlicensed venues that sold liquor in the home or operated spaza shops selling goods from their homes. Men worked as mechanics, repairing and servicing motor vehicles. These women and men used their homes as domestic spaces and places of work. However, in this instance, these women and men were self-employed home-based workers and in control of the entire production and the labour process. It was with the rise of the factory that the production moved from the household to the factory. This not only changed workers' perception of work in terms of being managed and reporting to a supervisor, but it also changed their relationship with time. Interestingly, it changes the way people think about time, because pre-industrial 
people thought in terms of a task. How long does it take to do a task? Now, in a factory, they are regulated by the clock. And the great advantage and the rationale for the factory is that it allows the employer to control the worker. In other words, because the problem with working from home, historically, was that you couldn't control how much people worked. Maybe they didn't work on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, only worked on Thursday and Friday. So you had no control. You couldn't increase your output, your productivity. Your pro so gathering under one roof allowed you to exercise control over workers. And this, so we see for the first time the introduction of the clock uh, as a way of regulating the time. And so the early struggles of workers were over the length of the working day, because obviously the employer wants to make you work as long as possible. And so the struggles and the demand for the working day, eight hours work a day, become a sort of central demand from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so you, the transformation uh, that takes place is, is um, a shift away from the home to the place. So that, in a way, what's happened now is we're almost like going full circle. Having started working from home, we now see ourselves going back to the home. However, what begins to change with the introduction of uh, the computer, information communication technology, is that you start to introduce global supply chain where people are working from home, not self-employed, but working for an intermediary. Maybe they're working in Mumbai and producing a part of the shoe. Maybe they are doing a Nike shoe and they, they handle a part of the process in that. And they're part of a, a global commodity chain. So they contract workers. And we see that here in South Africa as well. You may have uh, what we called domestic factories, where uh, someone will be producing uh, clothing from their home. They may have, they'll have a contract, so they contract workers. It's, a, it's a, a doing a specific job, as I said, task-centered, a particular task to produce a certain number of bundles of uh, cloth, and they will use their family labor and work long hours to meet that target. So they're working from home, yes. Uh, and in that sense, you may think, well, we're going back to pre-industrial times. No, we're not, because now the rhythm of work is being regulated by the commodity chain. So it's not like pre-industrial times where you didn't have to work on Monday or Tuesday, and maybe you, you, whatever you produce, you sell. There was no control over your labor. Now there is. 
it's if you like an invisible control because it's done it's done through the market to the global market and it's very competitive because you're competing against uh, other suppliers because Nike for I'm just using Nike as an example Nike as a maker of shoes uh, it doesn't make the shoe it outsources that to other countries in the south and those countries then compete amongst each other uh, as to who gets the contract to produce the shoe so it's it's now a, what's changed uh, and it's fundamental change is globalization uh, uh, has changed the way in which uh, work was being uh, undertaken now with digitalization i think we've gone a step further in uh in in because you now have the technology uh as we are showing in this interview here through zoom or through a different forms of uh new technology we're now able to do remote work across the globe from home with our own personal computers and i i think that that's uh, that's why it's possible now to have virtual customer service operating from johannesburg for customers in the us instead of having them in 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 a call center in a large building a bit like a factory uh now you can do that from home because we have the technology so the big change is the introduction of new digital technology plus globalization A closer examination of business practices amongst global IT giants such as Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Netflix, Google, and Spotify reveal the emergence of a new business model. These multinational firms tend to evade corporate governance codes, laws, and policies such as antitrust and competition policy. control and surveillance are exercised through a small mathematically proficient elite dominating decision making and policy by owning and controlling the algorithm in the process even greater income and wealth inequalities are created and increased precarity is witnessed for example in late june 2020 amazon ceo jeff bezos added 13 billion US dollars to his net worth in a single day demonstrating the increasing value placed on the digital economy the main attraction to remote work is the hope of flexibility and the freedom that comes with remote work many believe that remote work will allow them to spend more time with family and manage other care responsibility is this the case in reality How do the working experiences of virtual customer service associates reflect these expectations? Why do they choose this line of work? We spoke to an ex-virtual customer service associate employee. Firstly, I don't know anybody that wouldn't want to work for if they don't know because I was just excited it's by just just the brand. So what you see me is not what you get. future in a future prospects they're just having the brand name on my cv i could work for any company you know um and then 
working from home was a whole new experience, something I'd never done before. And I felt it would bring the freedom that Eddie's talking about mm. that, wow, I work from home, I've got freedom to do this and that and that, it's going to be nice, I'm with my kids, I've got more time on my hands. No, it's the total opposite of that. Yeah. And the minute you're clocking, the first call comes in. So you must be ready. The call comes in immediately. Um, do you have any opportunities to influence decisions on your employment conditions? No. Mm. I, I don't think so. Mm. I, you, you would have to be unionized to do that. Mm. And there are, yeah. no, there are no unions. Mm? There are no unions. No. This unprecedented concentration of wealth and power is generating resistance to the precarious employment condition in these tech giant companies. These actions are leading to increasing attempts to regulate the sector. In California, for example, legislators approved a landmark bill that requires companies like Uber and Lyft to treat contract workers as employees. There have been similar attempts to get Uber taxi drivers declared employees in South Africa. For these attempts to be effective, regulation will require a coordinated challenge from above and especially from below. What are the most stressful issues of working as a virtual customer service associate? Being micromanaged mm-hmm. on everything. Even your toilet breaks are micromanaged, your lunch is micromanaged, your, the quality of your calls, um, the, 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 your, your spelling and grammar. Because you know sometimes you have to type out when you're resolving a query, you type out things. Uh, when you so sometimes we, you, you you need to transfer a call to a different team mm-hmm. to resolve it because it wouldn't fall within your scope of work. Mm-hmm. So if you transfer to the wrong person, then that person will report you, and you will be in trouble, and you can go for disciplinary hearing. So there's a lot of snitches there. Yeah. Well, they program you to snitch each other out there the micromanaging is on another level that you've never seen before not even your parents micromanage you like that i I didn't mind the hours you know when you work a 10-hour shift Mm -hmm. i didn't mind it it's just that it felt like you've worked for a whole week because of the 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 abuse it felt like it Mm -hmm. you know so the abuse uh, made it make, make made it feel like you've been working forever, sure. and yet you've worked eight the normal eight hours. Mm. You know, somebody once said that working at for a day it's like working at a normal job for a week. That's how bad, that and it really it feels like that. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes how you will know it's it's. Uh, let's say you've just had this bad call. Yes. And then they will send you a message to say, please log off and I need to talk to you. That's when you know that. <laughs> it is, it's been bad. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, so you always, like, your heart is always beating fast. Always. I can't Especially imagine. when they send yeah. you a message. It's like, you, what have I done now? Mm. Always. Mm. So they never send you a message about anything nice. It's about, yeah. uh, please, uh, Log off, I need to talk to you. Sure. And it's always about the calls. It's always about why were you late. It's always about 
you know, uh, where your doctors know they're mm. not going to pay you. It's always about negative stuff. There's, positive. there's no appraisal for whatever that you you would have achieved there is there is a, a appraisal however the, the the negative outweighs the positive challenges are further compounded by the fact that women are more likely than men to be caregivers. On average, women in South Africa spend two more hours per day on domestic and care activities compared to men, who in contrast spend over an hour or more on production work. This is so regardless of the labour force status. Because of lockdown, and with schools and colleges closed, it is highly likely that women will take on the added housework. Of course, this will vary by household's income status and on the presence of live-in help. Early estimates based on a novel dataset, the National Income Dynamics Study, Coronavirus Rapid Mobile Survey, indicate that women have borne in brunt of the lockdown and shift to working remotely. As women do the bulk of unpaid domestic and care work, it is to be expected that they would be hardest hit by the shift to working from home. Some headline statistics indicate that the period between February and April, working women saw a decline in the number of hours worked by almost 35% compared to the decline of 26% experienced by men. Over a similar period, over half the male and female respondents indicated spending more time in childcare than before. However, the share of time allocated to childcare was greater for women than men. This can be negative, where it affects ability to seek and maintain work in subsequent periods where it gives added flexibility to juggle care responsibilities and productive work then it is positive. Even my kids were complaining that you've changed, you're not the same. You're not the same person. It's, it's that make people think it's nice to work there, but it's actually it's not, not nice to work there. You are on your own and you must answer for yourself. And because everybody else is looking out for number one, looking mm -hmm. out for themselves, mm -hmm. you are on your own. Mm -hmm. There's no even though they do have a platform where they say that it is it's a, it's a confidential, nobody's gonna know, you need to voice, nobody's voicing anything on that platform, no one voices anything. Mm. Because nothing is confidential there. If you voice something, you 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 are just putting you are putting a target on your back. Mm, back yeah. That's what you're doing. Yeah. Sure. So so with that, then you can't even follow like certain if you have any grievances like you can't have you can't voice them out anyway or you can you can they do have you know how here in south africa we have those grievance procedures and they have all of that everything is set up everything is set up by law you know how things are supposed to be done everything is set up like yes. that. however you are a troublemaker when you're doing that sure now you will now they will really monitor you.
With remote workers, the employers have transferred the risk and costs to workers, and they often get away with paying less. The workers are the ones who incur this responsibility of resources that the employers have always carried, as well as ensuring that they have the right workspace or environment to complete the work. This further increases precarity. This is sharply in contrast with workers employed at a factory who are easily organized as they have a higher probability of belonging to at least one union. Jane Barrett from Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing, WIGO, further explains. You might have the workers in the factory might be unionized or they might not be unionized, but they, they, um, you know, they might be subject to the minimum wage, they're subject to, to at least some standards of health and safety, but the employer has a responsibility. But when they subcontract, and sometimes it's through three or four intermediaries, by the time the work comes to the subcontracted worker, she actually doesn't even know who the employer is. And so in this way, the, the factory owner just obfuscates the relationship and transfers all of the risk onto the home worker. So that's been happening for a long, long time in many sectors, but particularly in the garment sector. Um, and there have been, you know, a lot of efforts to, to counter it, to organize home workers, to try and win the same minimum rights as factory workers. But of course, now with the lockdown and many workers from all sorts of sectors being asked to work from home, the same process is happening. Um, you know, while there's still, a, you know, in many cases, you know, like in the financial sector at the moment, the relationship is still transparent. But unless workers, you know, if this lockdown goes on for a long time and if it starts to transform, if um, it transforms the work relationship. So, for example, if banks start to see an advantage in leaving the workers at home, um, we might find that the same obfuscation starts to happen and also that the same transfer of risk starts to happen so that the employer starts reducing the, uh, you know, the contributions to social security, to protections of you know, maybe a pension, um, unemployment insurance and so on by telling the worker that they're no longer an employee but they are a self-employed contractor and therefore they must carry the risk of covering themselves for medical aid, pension, etc., etc. In the labor force surveys that countries run, including our own quarterly labor force survey, um, the place of work is generally not recorded. So when the enumerators go around and they ask questions for a labor, works, uh, labor force survey. When they ask people what work do they do, um, most countries don't ask the question, where do you do that work? So what is your workplace? So when you, when you look at the statistics, it's very, very difficult to determine for any country um, 
exactly how many people work from home, um, never mind per sector how many work from home. Um, so the statisticians who work in WeGo have for years been pushing through the ILO, the International Labour Organization, for place of work to be included in those labour force surveys. Um, some countries have started to introduce, but it's a long way off a sort of international standard. So in South Africa, we don't have a statistic. I mean, there has been, there was a paper written by uh, Ruth Castle Branco in 2013, where she quotes a figure of around half a million, um, actually no, but less than that, 355,000 workers working from home. But that was quite some time ago. And that included um, Shabin, Spaza shops, uh, catering, craft workers, you know, cut across all of the sectors. Um, so I would imagine, I mean, this is a guesstimate, I would imagine we're probably talking of about half a million if you include all of those um, sectors in the informal economy. Um, and so you're talking really huge numbers. Um, and obviously the, you know, one needs to sort of identify what's common and what's quite different between the sectors. Um, what, what is common is that anyone working from home, unless like in the current situation where there is a clear employment relationship and they just have relocated their physical space, for the vast majority they're carrying all the risk, they have to cover their own all their own costs, including um, the production costs, the cost of electricity, the cost of water, the costs of, of um, health protection, etc. So, you know, one, one of the arguments of WeGo is that policy um, needs to change at many levels, um, but a most critical policy change that would assist and support home-based workers is a very, very a radical change in the way we see um, town and city planning. Um, so, you know, at the moment we have a very rigid regulation around what, what activities can take place in suburbs. Um, and of course, in the townships, there's a lot in South Africa. There's a lot of um, deviation from the regulation, but the regulations still exist. That you know, you're not allowed to manufacture. You're not lot, not allowed to do all sorts of things. You're not allowed to basically run a business from home. So, if we're going to be realistic about these half a million workers who generate probably about half a billion rands worth of of uh, turnover a month, if, we, if we're actually going to recognize and um, include them in our thinking about the economy, then we need to start a very, looking very differently at that separation of home and workplace and, and accept that uh, houses need to be designed differently, yards need to be designed differently, 
infrastructure needs to be rolled out in a way that supports working from home um, and that there needs to be there need to be policies which help in neighborhoods to collectivize the the access to infrastructure and and so on so it's often not ideal to actually work from from the home itself but if there were strategies in neighborhoods where there were small um, collectivized community centers where workers could come together and there could be joint childcare, there could be joint um, access to ablutions, there could be um, shared access to machinery and so on. But, you know, that would really go a long way to support the livelihoods of these huge numbers of people who do work from home. But of course, the strategy needs to be a little bit nuanced per sector. So, so there's a lot of thinking that's required to really adequately address the problem. So, yeah, there, you know, a myriad of problems. I mean, in some countries, there's a sort of cultural uh, pressure for women not to work in um, in the factory environment. You know, very patriarchal countries, uh, very patriarchal societies. So, in those cases, you know, women women are expected to stay at home, but at the same time, there's not enough income. So then they feel pressurized to work from home. So, you know, the problem is also interlaced with issues of of patriarchy and control over women, um, and so. The best organizing efforts, which have been done by many home-based worker organizations in South Asia and Southeast Asia, have, have tackled the issue not just as an issue of work, but also um, to, uh, have also identified other social needs, like the need for childcare facilities um, and so on, and like the need for savings cooperatives or um, healthcare collectives and so on. So, you know, and Sewe is certainly the, the most prominent example of such an organization, but there are many others in, in South Asia and Southeast Asia who've taken this route of, of not just organizing around the work itself, but also around all of the social conditions that are attached to the work. Um, yeah, so and childcare is, is amongst the most prominent of those challenges. But there's also the challenge of the lack of space, you know. Very often you're talking of people living in very, very crowded conditions and, you know, the workplace is a tiny corner in, in the side of the kitchen. Um, and, you know, that sort of pressure of no space adds to the tensions of work and uh, domestic conflict and so on, gender-based violence, all of, those, all of those social conditions are very much embedded in the challenge of, of homework and home-based work.
It seems as if hybrid or mixed forms of union-like organizations are emerging side by side with traditional trade unions to defend the needs and interests of workers in the digital economy. Historically, the world of work has been consistently transformed through what Beverly Silver calls technological fixes. These technological fixes lead to new types of workers, new forms of worker organization, and new modes of struggle. In other words, those who speak of the end of labor are speaking of the end of a particular kind of worker organization. Instead, what is emerging in the digital economy are hybrid forms of organization. These include different types of associations that blur the distinction between traditional unionism, informal workers, associations, and cooperatives. If effective regulation of platform capitalism is to emerge, then collective representation and voice for workers in the digital economy will be necessary. There are two main reasons for this. Firstly, in order to mitigate the risk faced by remote workers and for improving the terms and conditions governing their work. Secondly, in order to rebalance the power and information asymmetries between the platforms and their workers. In the next episode, we imagine in detail what the future of work could possibly look like. We discuss some of the issues likely to be encountered by workers and managers and other constraints faced as firms seek to remain profitable and continue as a source of employment for many. Thank you for listening to Cusini, a media initiative of SCIS. For more about us and our work, please follow us on Twitter at vits underscore SCIS. And our website is www.vits.ac.za forward slash SCIS. This episode is available on IONO FM and across other podcast channels.